Well, amen. How many of you brought your Bibles today? Hold them up. Let me see, okay? How many of you got the bulletin? Inside the bulletin, there is an outline with fill in the blanks. Hold it up if you've got it. Hold it up. Good. How many of you have a pen with you or a pencil or writing stick? Hold it up. Okay, get it out. I'm not just flapping my jaws today. I've studied, I've prayed, and this is critically important, what I'm going to share with you today. If you listen, you remember about 14% of what you hear. If you write it down, you about three times as much will stay with you longer. I want this to stay with you. Not just because I'm saying it, because it comes from God's Word. I don't know how to do anything else but to preach from God's Word. By the way, you don't need anything else. You sure don't need my opinion. You need the truth of God's Word. I could appreciate an amen right about now. Thank you. Be responsive. Take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. That's your turning. Let me draw your attention. How many of you remember the television series Mission Impossible? Any of you old enough to remember that? I feel you. How many of you have seen the movie? Because there have been a couple movies, Mission Impossible. You know how it always starts? You have this agent, this superhero, Tom Cruise or somebody, and he goes in a quiet place, a telephone booth, and puts a, used to be a tape, little tape, now I guess it's this computer chip, and this driving music comes in, boom, 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 and it goes in, and he plays it, and there's a recording, it says, Welcome Agent Jones. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to parachute into the Kremlin and steal Mr. Putin's undershorts and escape disguised as Mother Teresa. This tape will self-destruct in 10 seconds. Should you be caught, we will deny any knowledge of your existence. You're out on your own, eh? Okay. He always accepts it, and he takes the mission impossible. There's that music. And what follows is nail-biting action scenes mixed with a bit of Hollywood romance and one-liner humor, right? Great, thanks. Okay, guy, we got it, good. We ought to have that through the whole meeting. Maybe it really gets you going, okay? Every person needs a mission statement. I didn't ask the first service. When I mentor young pastors or pastors-to-be, one of the first things I do is say, look, what's your mission statement? In Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the second habit is begin with the end in mind. What do you want your children and grandchildren to say at your funeral? Out of that comes your, this is why you're here, that comes your mission statement. Not only every person, every organization, every church needs a mission statement. Some statement of why you're here, your purpose, what you want to accomplish. When over a month ago I first came here just to interview with the three-man committee that were looking for an interim pastor, the first thing that struck me as I walked down those halls is there written on, on the walls is your mission statement. I stopped and said, man, that is a great mission statement. Then I asked last Sunday, how many of you had to, could stand and give the mission statement? Three hands, three staff members put their hands up because I warned them about it. And everybody, I don't know what our mission statement is. Most churches, if you ask them what their mission statement is, they'd say, well, I hope we open the doors again next Sunday. What else is there, you know? George Gallup tells us that in the next 10 years, over 100,000 churches in the United States of America will close their doors forever. A hundred thousand churches will drop off the face of the map. They will die not for lack of finances. They will die not for lack of programs or even preachers. They will die for lack of purpose, lack of vision, no mission, no reason why they're here. So what is the Oaks mission statement? Put it on the screen, guys. Let's read it. Read it together with me. Experiencing an authentic faith journey Rooted in truth. Say it again. Next five weeks, this is where we're going. Say it together. Experiencing an authentic 
faith journey rooted in truth. Experiencing, that's today. And authentic, pray for next Sunday. Because you can't get out of here without getting real. Authentic, faith. What's going on in your life that can only be explained by the power and presence of God? If you've got all your ducks and rows, you've got it together, you don't need God. Read my lips, you need God. Experiencing authentic faith, journey. It's not a destination, it's a journey. And we're not left to flounder alone, rooted in truth, God's truth. So I thought as I prayed, what could I do during this interim period as I'm your shepherd, your pastor? What could I preach on? And the Lord said, preach on their mission statement. Let's rediscover who we are. Why we're here on the, on the side of the freeway, hundreds of thousands of cars driving by every day. What is our purpose? What is unique about the Oaks? The church, that, that, that is our purpose for existence. So here it is, experiencing God's an authentic faith journey rooted in truth. The church is not a building. The church is not just a sermon. The church is far more than the preacher. The church is an experience. It involves people. It involves the whole of life. It involves first being and then doing. All of this, it is an experience. If you're just walking in here sitting and walk out unchanged, you haven't experienced anything divine. So I want us to experience Christ today. Well, let me read for you the word from the New King James. You follow along either the words on the screen or the Bible you hold. This is God's word. Would you stand out of respect for its authority? And I'm going to begin two verses before, and it's not that it's my fault. I want to begin with verse 40, and then we'll pick up on the screen in verse 42. This, you know, is Pentecost. This is the happy birthday of the church when it first began. If you're wondering why you're here, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to when it started and see what the early church has a pattern for what we ought to be about. In verse 40, it says, after the great sermon on Pentecost, and with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved. Turn to your neighbor and say, be saved. Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Say baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. We got breaking of bread down. But some of these other things we need to work on. Amen. Verse 43, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods, divided among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Lord Jesus, as we've opened the pages of Holy Scripture, would you open the pages of our heart and write on our hearts the changes you want to bring? Lord, for some of us, it'll be a reminder of old truths that have long since forgotten. For others, it'll be a new sense of something new we never thought about. But don't let anyone leave here not having been changed. I pray in the power and the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Be seated. Let me talk, first of all, about what we are. That's why I began with verses 40 and 41. Because it says two things about the church. What kind of people are the church? Number one, they're saved. 
Peter says, be saved from this perverse generation. Well, that goes without saying, Brother Al. No, it does not. No, it does not. I've pastored for nearly 40 years, and I found only two churches, but I soon found out that my greatest evangelism field was my own church members. I baptized deacons. One, this is for free, okay. One, one evangelist had a citywide crusade. They were in the high school stadium, this kind of thing. And he wanted to be sure that everybody had given a personal invitation to give their lives to Christ. So he had everybody stand up, turn to the person next to him, and say, do you know for sure you're a Christian? So they all did, and he had kind of a holy mumbles kind of thing. And one little eight-year-old boy turned to a man in a black suit and a black tie and said, mister, do you know for sure you're a Christian? He said, I'll have you know, I'm a deacon down to First Baptist Church. And the little boy said, that's all right, God can save you too. I baptized deacons, I baptized deacons' wives, I baptized staff members, I baptized scores of seminary students. People who walked an aisle were signed a card, dipped, run, drunk, and dropped, and, and never experienced the life-changing regeneration that only the Spirit of God can give. I've been praying that church members of this church, who are members of this church but not members of the family of God, they believe everything about Jesus, but the Bible says you must believe not in your head. You're 18 inches from heaven. You must believe in your heart. And that's what changes you. The people of God, the church is made up of saved people. Folks, you can be a member of every Southern Baptist church in Dallas County and be as lost as a goose. Can I let you in a secret? There is a whole subdivision in hell staked out for Southern Baptist church members who are members of local churches but had never turned their lives over to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let me ask you a key question, maybe help you understand this. Take this personally. Suppose you were standing before God right now and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you think you'd say? I've asked that hundreds, maybe thousands of times. The answer, I mostly, oh, well, that's a hard one. Well, I try to treat people right. I know I'm not perfect like they're telling anything. But I try to treat people like I'd want to be. I try to be a good wife or a good husband, this kind of thing. As though all you're trying is somehow going to impress God. Can I give you a word today? Stop trying. Start trusting if you could be good enough, well, I go to church every once in a while. I even put a $10 bill in the offering plate. Like God's impressed when He gave His own life. Stop trying. Start trusting. I try to make it simple. It's profound, but it is simple. When I talk about the ABCs of salvation. A, you must admit you need a Savior. Admit you need a Savior. You will never be good enough to earn your way into heaven. If you could be good enough by going to church enough, by giving enough money, by being a good guy or a good gal or whatever else like this, if you could be good enough to earn your way, then why did Jesus have to die? I got to share this with a gal that cut my hair yesterday. Because the Bible says both Old Testament and New, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. We have all together gone out of the way. We have all together. There is none righteous, no, not one. Unless you think you're the great exception, except for me, of course. None righteous. The Bible says in Isaiah, all your righteousness, when you try to offer up this to impress God and God, there's stinking mess. There are filthy rags. 
Because you said, I don't care if Jesus died, I'm good enough to earn my own way there. Admit you need a Savior. B, believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ alone, who died on Calvary's cross for your sins. That's my only hope. This is all my hope and peace. What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the only hope we've got. And you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and see you commit your life to Him as the Lord of your life. You can believe all about Jesus, but until you make Him the Lord. Some people say, well, you know, I I, have Jesus my Savior, but I don't know if I have Him as Lord. Listen to me. Read my lips. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without having Him as Lord. It cannot be done. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you still think you're running the show, you're doomed for destruction. That stupid bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. Are you kidding me? God will share His glory with no man. Your co-pilot? Most of us think of God kind of like a pilot does his parachute. It's kind of comforting to know He's there, but hope you never have to use Him. If God is not the owner of your plane, the manager, the pilot, the navigator, you're headed because he's not going to share his glory with any man. Give it over to him, lock, stock, and barrel. That's how you become a follower of Christ. That's how you become a, a Christian. That's how you become saved. Admit you need a Savior. Give up on your own works. Believe in Jesus Christ alone and commit your life to him as Lord and Savior of your life. Stop trying. Start trusting. Some of you think, well, if I could just clean my life up a little bit. You'll never... The old song says, if we... Terry, till we're better, we will never come at all. Charlotte Elliott was an English woman, single gal, an invalid. Her, husband, her father, rather, and her brothers were all evangelists and preachers going out every weekend to win souls and instruct the church. And there she was home alone with nothing but condemnation. She couldn't do anything for God. She was an invalid. Said, oh God, what can I do? And then God spoke to her heart, said, Charlotte, just come to me just as you are. Don't wait until you're better. She wrote a poem, became a song. Sing it with me. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come just as I am. So the people in the first church and the people in this church are number one, they're saved, but secondly, they are baptized. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. You understand, you don't get baptized in order to get saved, you get baptized because you've been saved. It's an outward expression of an inward faith. I share with people like my wedding ring. This wedding ring doesn't make me married. If I lose this wedding ring on the way out to the car this afternoon, I'll be just as married tomorrow as I was today. But this is an outward, a public expression, and it's symbolic. It's public. What do you think Miss Kay would think if every time I walked out of the house, I slipped off my finger and put it in my pocket? I always love the expressions on the women. The guys are trying to figure it out. Women have. What kind of turkey is that? I had one lady call me and say, I know I need to get baptized. I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm really shy. Can I do it on Thursday night when no one's there? I'm not making it up. That's what she said. I said, honey, I'm sorry. It's a public expression of an inward faith. Jesus walked Calvary's cross 
publicly for you. The least you can do is before. By the way, nothing you'll ever do will get more positive response from this crowd than, than, than profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in the waters of baptism. It's public and it's symbolic. Everybody knows third finger, left, left, left hand. Pinky finger doesn't mean anything. Right hand doesn't mean anything. Third finger, that's the wedding ring finger. That's the one that means he's attached, he's committed, gals, so hands off, okay? That, 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 that's, well, the public symbolism of baptism, it's symbolic. You stand on waters like people have done for 2,000 years. And it's a pantomime. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. What did they do after he died? They placed him in the body. You go down the water. You'd be glad to know I don't hold people down three days. You go down the water as a picture of his death. And you come up out of the water as a picture of his resurrection. You're saying, Jesus is Lord, and I want everybody to know. Public and symbolic. That's who makes up the church. I had, what, I had several people tell me when I, I was talking about giving their lives to Christ. He says, well, I believe in Jesus. I want to give my life to him, but I don't have to be baptized to be saved, do I? And the answer is, no, you don't, but you do. If that's the one thing you will not do, that's the one thing you must do. If he's Lord, and if he said this is the first sign of obedience... Enter discussion. Where's the water? Those people of the first church and the people of this church, they experience church, first of all, by being saved and being baptized as a mark, as a public expression of that faith. That's what we are. That's foundation. The next point arises out of that, and that's what we do. Being always precedes doing. You can do some of these things and never be what, what the Bible says we need to be, but you can't do it right. There are three things here in this passage that are involved in what Christians who've been baptized, what they do. Number one has to do with learning. Say learning. It says in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. To truly experience church involves learning. Oh, boy, I had some stares in the early service with the older folks. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. That may be true for dogs, but it's not true for us. Constantly learning. Constantly doctrine. I don't like doctrine. Get practical. You can't get more practical than the apostles' doctrine. That's what changes lives. That's what makes a difference. It's the Word of God which transforms us as we sang great song from the inside out. In the Old Testament, the great Shema in Deuteronomy says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and strength. When Jesus came, he said, This is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength. And then he added, And mine. God is interested in your mind. Did you know that? Jesus wants your mind. Your head was designed to be more than a hat rack. I've had people say, Brother Al, why is it when I walk into church, I feel like I unscrew my head and put it in the pew because I know everything that happens is going to be directed to my heart, not to my mind. Not here, gang, not with me. God wants us to learn, and that's what the early church was involved in, continually learning new and more things. I know some people are actually proud of their ignorance, like that's some sign of spirituality. You know what I'm talking about? One English teacher was... First day of school, and she wrote on the blackboard, I ain't had no fun all summer. She turned to one of the students and said, Now, Susie, what should I do to correct this? And Susie said, Oh, Miss Hughes, you've got to get yourself a boyfriend. <laughs> Ignorance. 
is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. I need an amen right now. I have a Bachelor of Arts degree, a Master of Arts degree, a PhD that stands for Piled High and Deep. I've been to postdoctoral studies three times at Oxford and I'm still learning every day. I'm amazed at my own ignorance, how much more there is to learn. And what a journey it is to learn every day. By the way, when we get to heaven, learning doesn't stop. We'll have all eternity to learn new and better things all for eternity. The Apostles' Doctrine is the life-changing truth of God's Word. What we're about is learning. Secondly, what we're about is caring. It says in our passage that they had fellowship with one another. Folks, if you think fellowship means cookies and Kool-Aid in the fellowship hall, you don't have a clue. The Bible word fellowship is the word koinonia. And it means the intertwining, intertangling, sharing of life together. And you can't share life together if you won't be open and transparent. Staff, get ready. We're going to talk about this in staff meeting tomorrow morning. Get ready. Don't miss next Sunday. Don't miss next Sunday. As we talk about the business of transparency, where we can share our lives. We can share our hopes and dreams and our broken hearts together. Folks, if this place is not a place where I can cry, where can I go to pour my heart out? If this is not a place where I can't trust the people of God with my burdens and my sins and confess our faults to one another, where will I go to find hope and healing for my soul? If this is a place where I can't share my dreams, where I can't share my broken heart about my disappointing children... Where can I go about all that is fun? I'd be interested this morning. I didn't ask the first hour. i ask you, how many of you are willing to be transparent enough to raise your hand and say, in my home, there's at least some measure of dysfunction? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Hold it up. Look around. Now, look. Keep your hands up and look around. Those whose hands are not up, that's what denial looks like, okay? <laughs> all of us come from dysfunctional homes. I come from a dysfunctional home. I'm part of the problem. And this is the place where we have to deal with the issues. Fellowship. Find healing for my wounded soul. Not only emotional fellowship, spiritual fellowship, but it said the fellowship involved this. They had all things common. They ministered to each other's needs. In the first church, if someone had and someone needed, hey, what? It's yours. We share our needs. We share, we meet each other's needs. That's one of the distinctives about the early church was that they met each other's needs. The Roman Empire during the first 200 years of the church, or 300 years, was a, uh, urbanization. People were moving to the cities. People didn't know the culture. People didn't know the language. They'd come in and be dumped off on the shores, and they'd look around didn't know where to go for the next meal. And it was the people of the living body of Christ who met them and said, Hey, I can come take you where you can have a meal. Need a roof over your head? We can help you. Need a job? We'll help you teach you. Latin is a second language, Okay. LSL classes. All I'm saying is that, in fact, Christians were so distinctive that they cared for the sick, the poor, and the destitute. The pagans couldn't understand it. Plagues hit in the year 165, again in 251. Nearly 25% of the whole Roman Empire died out in these awful plagues. How did the pagans react? They ran to the countryside because it was catchy. The only people who stayed and ministered to the sick were the Christians. In fact, the pagans gave them the name the Parambolae. The risk-takers, the gamblers, because they risked their lives to take care of the poor, the sick, and the needy. 
Constantine in 313 made Christianity the official religion of the empire. He was followed by Julian the Apostate, a bitter man, who reversed it and began persecuting the church and sought systematically to stomp it out. And after three years, he gave up because he couldn't get the pagans to stay and minister to the sick or to reach out to the poor. And on his deathbed, Julian the Apostate cried out, Oh, Galilean, thou hast triumphed. How did he triumph? Through the beautiful body of Christ that had fellowship and cared for the needy and for each other. That's what the church, that's the church experience I'm talking about today. Not only learning, not only caring, but thirdly, praying. The early church began with a prayer meeting in the upper room where they were all together and they were all with one accord seeking the face of God together. I know this sounds like preacher talk, but I'm telling you it is true. This church will never advance any further than the effectiveness of our prayer ministry. So one of the top goals I've set with the leadership conference, for however long you'll put up with me, is that by the time I leave there will be an effective, active prayer ministry, the kind that people from all over the world will send emails to share their needs because they know we're a praying church. Can I get some amens there? That's the kind of church God is calling us to be. That's the kind of experience we need to have. The early church grew because of prayer. They met their problems and obstacles with prayer. They endured persecution by prayer. They only chose their leaders after much prayer and fasting. Their mission statement is impossible apart from our prayers. Prayer directed their mission strategy. It was through a prayerful dream that the Macedonians said, come over to Macedonia and help us. We're good at a whole lot of things in the church in America. We've got the nicest buildings in the world. We've got more Christian radio, Christian television, the whole rest of the world combined. We've got buses larger than our school system. TV and radio program. One Chinese pastor came to America for two weeks just to check things out. And all the things were overwhelming. The television, radio, and the facilities, and padded seats, and air-conditioned rooms. When he got back to China, he met with his pastor friends and said, What did you find? I said, It is absolutely amazing what the church in America can do without God. What is happening here that can only be explained by the presence and the power of God Himself. That only comes, dear people, through prayer. That's why it'll be a focus in our worship. That's why I pray, oh God, somehow make us willing to intercede for the body of Christ. You remember that old song about halfway through the song? Remember it, sing it with me. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, what they were, they were saved and baptized. What they did, learning, caring, and praying. And finally, how they did it, or how they do it. Okay? The Puritans used to say, God loveth adverbs. What he means by that, the Bible not only tells us what to do, it tells us how we ought to do it. The adverbs. And here's how they experienced church. Three things jumped out at me from this passage. Number one, they did things continuously, both in verse 42 and 48. They continued daily with one accord. They continued steadfast with the apostles' doctrine. 
In other words, in the early church, there was no summer slump. Ooh, it's quiet. They were like the, the energizer bunny. They just kept going and going and going and going. Active, involved, praying, caring, and praying. There seems to be there's a new standard of faithfulness in the church here in Texas. Probably in America. It used to be if you were a faithful member of a church. Some of this you're not going to believe this, but if I'm lying, I'm dying. If you said, I'm a faithful member of the Oaks Church or wherever, that meant Sunday morning. What else? Sunday. What else? Wednesday night. There without fail. If I got allowance of 10 cents, my parents taught me one penny of that goes towards your Sunday school offering. It's called tithing. What did he say? Tithing. That's what it means to be faithful. There's a new standard of faithfulness. We consider we're faithful members if we show up once a month. Well, that's faithful, isn't it? It's reliable. Once a month, I'll be there. The early church did what they did continuously. Continuously. And if one member of the family was too sick to go to church, that would mean everybody stays home. If they're kids, you have someone look after them and the rest go. Not an excuse not to show up. They were steadfast. It was continuously. Can I call the Oaks Church to a biblical standard of faithfulness? Be present. Be productive. Serve. Give. Be positive. Be positive. If that leads me to the next thought. How they did it, they did it continuously. Secondly, they did it joyfully. Twice in this passage, it says, they that gladly received the word. That they, it says that they ate their food with gladness. Most of us get that down. If it's food, we're glad about it. But they did it, everything they did, with a sense of gladness. The word means to celebrate. It means to be exceedingly joyful, overflowing with abundant joy. That is, you know, joy is contagious, so is misery. I know here today there are many people who have been born again, praise God. But I suspect there's a few here who have been born against. You know what I'm talking about? I don't care, I'm again. I'm reminded of this church, country church, that was having a big debate at their monthly church conference. They're trying to find whether they could afford to put a chandelier in the vestibule. And they're going back and forth, finding one old boy. Well, I'm against it. Well, why, Brother Jones? Well, first of all, ain't nobody here can spell it. Well, he's right about that. Secondly, we don't need no chandelier. What we really need on that vestibule is a light of some kind. (laughs) Just knee-jerk reaction. I'm against it. The early church was characterized by joy. I had several people in this morning's message before the service said, it was so good to hear laughter in this church again. Listen, gang, if you're coming with Kay and me, we're going to laugh. We are going to, I don't care how dark it is, we got to laugh all the more. We're going to have fun on the journey, amen? Amen. We got to, joyfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the characteristics of the saints. Christians should be the most joyful people in town. 
I know, I know, ISIS is expanding and threatening Baghdad. Oil prices are down in Texas and so is the stock market. And oh my stars, now we've got to choose between Donald and Hillary. What in the world are we going to do? Whatever we do, we're going to have fun on the journey. Amen? Come on, amen? I know it looks bad, but guess what? I peeked at the last chapter. The fact of the matter is, when it's all been said and done, we win. Amen? I think we need to give God a hand praise today. Fill this house with praise. We win! Hallelujah! Whatever they did, they did continuously, they did joyfully, and lastly, they did it together. In verse 1, it says they were all with one accord in one place. In verse 44, it says, and they were together. For better or for worse, gang, we're in this together. Come hell or high water, we're in this together. Two things in this life you cannot do alone. Number one, you can't get married alone. Sooner or later, someone else has to say, I do too. Secondly, you cannot be a Christian alone. When Jesus ascended in heaven, he didn't give summa thuma theologica. He gave the body of Christ. And that's how this world is going to be lost. We're going to be one to Christ. Together or not all. When I was a kid, I used to hear the evangelists come, the world has yet to see what God can do through the life of one man totally sold out the Lordship of Christ. Baloney! God works through groups, through people, through His church. And there is no plan B. We do it together and not at all. In 1776, when the Founding Fathers signed their name to the Declaration of Independence, was an, a, a treatise of rebellion and treason. Gang, what's the punishment for treason? Death. And that's what they were signing. Ben Frankenstein put down the pen and said, Gentlemen, we had better hang together or you can be certain we will hang separately. People, we had better hang together. Or we'll fall apart separately. Church is an experience that involves all of us in the totality of our lives. Will anyone come and join me? Join us? I thought and prayed what to call us. At Wedgwood Church, we called ourselves wedgies. <laughs> Get over it. So what can we tell ourselves? The only thing I could come up with is Okies. We're not from Muskogee, but we're Okies. And we do it together and not at all. Put the last slide up, guys. The Oaks Church. What's missing in the slide? What's missing? Turn to the person next to you and say, you are. Lord Jesus... May every soul here today realize how critically important they are to your church. I preached your truth as clearly as I know how to do, but unless your spirit moves in hearts, it all falls in vain. Spirit of God, leave us not now during this time of invitation. As we commit ourselves afresh to being the people of God together, 
There are people here today, Lord, who've never trusted you as Savior and Lord. They may be members of a church, but they've never trusted you as Savior and Lord. Bring them to yourself today, O oh God. There are people here who've been saved but never been scripturally baptized. And they come to present themselves. There are people here today who are Christians but sense the Spirit of God calling them to this church. God, may they be obedient to you. We come before you bearing our soul. Change what you want to change in Jesus' name. Amen.